Philemon verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Jesus. I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be, co- be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it, to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Here ends the second reading. Well, good morning, folks. Please do take a seat. And as you get yourselves settled in that seat, and um, uh, we... Uh, prepare to open up God's word together. Let me pray for us. Let me pray. Father God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. So illuminate our ways so we might walk with you and for you every step of the way. Amen. Well, let me start this morning with a short spelling test for you. Um, hopefully this will wake you up. Um, here we go. Here's um, my one and only question. What is this spell? C-O-N-F-R-O-N-T. I'm not, I'm not going to do hands up and all anything embarrassing like that. The word is confront. And I wonder how you feel about that word this morning. For example, if I was to say to you, Uh, after church today, I would like to see you in my office because something has been brought to my attention about your life that I need to see you about and that we need to thrash through together. How would you feel about that? Well, some of you might laugh because you know that I am uh, such a light-hearted softie that being, uh, well, you reckon that being confronted by me must be uh, akin to being mauled by a teddy bear. But others of you, you might respond, well, like I would. 
if the shoe was on the other foot. So if you were to say that you were coming around to mine tonight to confront me, I would probably treat you like a trick-or-treater, turning out all the lights and pretending that no one is at home. I find that confrontation makes me anxious and uneasy, insecure and looking for a back door of escape. And I reckon that actually most of us would do almost anything to avoid confrontation, wouldn't we? Yet the Bible teaches us that confrontation, if properly handled, is a good thing. It is a good thing. And so it's something that we need to learn to embrace and to do well. After all, the gospel good news of Jesus Christ himself confronts us, doesn't it? Why, after all, did God come down from heaven in the person of Jesus that first Christmas? Well, ultimately, it was to save us. But in order to save us, he had to confront us with what we needed saving from, our sin. So he says to us, let me stop you there. You're a sinner. You're going the wrong way. Turn around and come back to me. And once we turn to Christ, then we are on a journey, a journey with him to become more like him. And folks, I don't know about you, but I have got so, so far to go on that journey. I have so much changing I need to do. And I need other people's perspectives and input in order to help me do that. Because I've got so many blind spots, so often I do not see my sin in myself. Which is why that God puts me and you into a family, which he calls the church. And he tells us to love one another as brothers and sisters, enough to confront one another, to challenge each other, to do seemingly impossible things like become more like Jesus. And as life unfolds and we seek to do that in relationship together, it's a bit like trying to stand on the roof of the church here, actually, as we have to walk along the ridge line on top of the roof. Uh, and we have to keep our balance there. It's so easy to slip down one side or the other of the roof. And on one side of the roof, we've got condemnation. We can slip into that so easily, where it's just angry and noisy and aggressive and hurtful the way that we confront one another. And ultimately, it's very, very messy. And we've probably experienced that kind of confrontation before, which is why we slip down the other side of the roof ordinarily. And often we retreat to avoidance. So rather than confronting the person with the issue, we cocoon. And the issue just keeps festering away inside of me. It's like spilling milk here on the carpet at the church, which I'm not going to do, don't worry. There's a few people going, ooh, he's mad enough. But I'm not going to do that. The administrator's giving me the eyes, not least. But it's like spilling milk there, the cocooning. It's like spilling milk and, and not turning it up properly. And so it goes rancid. When we come back in the next week, there's this rancid smell in the air as it festers away. That's what avoidance does to us. And maybe there is a relationship or a situation you're involved in the moment that is either about to explode 
or go rancid unless it's confronted. Well, if there is, then I'm sure it will make you think instantly of the book of Philemon. Okay, probably it doesn't, but it should. You should think about that. Because here, in this easily missed yet unmissable letter, the Apostle Paul is writing, so that the relationship between two Christians can be restored. For great wrong has been done here. And there is much that needs to be confronted without falling into avoidance or confrontation. So please could you make sure you've got the book of Philemon open in front of you. It is page 1000 precisely uh, in the black Bibles uh, in the pockets of the chairs in front of you. And as we look at this, what we're going to do is we're going to piece together the story behind the letter. And then the conflict resolution will hopefully become clear. So, the story. Enter. Stage right. Philemon. It looks like Philemon met Paul and became a Christian through him sometime previously. Verse 19. He owes him his life, says Paul. And now he hosts and leads a church in his house. Verse 2. The church that meets in your home. And the fact that he's got a house that's big enough to host a church meeting suggests he's obviously got a little bit of dough. And like any wealthy uh, person, citizen in Roman times, he would have had servants like, enter stage left, one Seamus, whose name means useful. (laughs) What was his parents thinking about there? Perhaps he has a brother called Handy and a sister called Multipurpose. I don't know. But as Paul makes this play on his name in verse 11 and calls him useless, we see the big issue start to emerge. For one Seamus, the useless slave that he was, seems to have snatched some of Philemon's uh, savings and made a run for it. But it's a small world, as they say. And irony of irony, one Seamus seems to have bumped into Paul and now he had become a Christian. Verse 16. And so Paul, despite every personal inclination to keep one Seamus as a friend and as a helper who is now useful to him, nevertheless, he sends him back to Philemon with a heartfelt plea. Can you see? Verse 12. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But... I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. Paul knows that one Seamus has wronged Philemon. Maybe stolen that money. He's definitely run away from him. And he can't just forget the past now that this man has been converted and he's working with him in gospel ministry. No, this issue must be confronted. It can't be left to fester like spilt milk. One Seamus has to return to Philemon and make his peace with him. Paul, you see, knows that Christian work, that the Christian work he does here, will have no integrity if the relationship between these two men is not restored. No integrity. It will be undermined by it. That's really striking, isn't it? Do we get it? All the good work that we do here, either as individuals or as a church, it could be really undermined if the relationships between us are not right. 
So if you have a problem with someone here, or you develop a problem with someone here, it must be sorted out. It must be. And I tell you, whatever the problem is, I bet you it is not as big a problem as one Seamus's. For if Philemon ever got his hands on this runaway slave, he would be under strong pressure from his fellow slave-owning neighbors to make a real example of him. Rebellious slaves in those days, they were branded with an F on their forehead for fugitive. But that was only if their owner was in a really good mood. As ordinarily, they would have them crucified. There were 60 million slaves in the ancient world. And how do you keep that many slaves in order unless you kill the ones that are disobedient? That's how it rolled. That was the situation one Seamus faced. So can you imagine how one Seamus must have felt? Put yourself in his shoes as he heads back to Philemon with this letter. We can imagine the sense of foreboding with every step, passing all these homes where he knows if he was a slave from one of those houses, (laughs) he would be crucified, or at the very least, branded. And can you imagine Philemon's surprise when he sees his runaway slave? And how he might have snatched the letter from Winsemus' grasp, barely able to control his temper. Give me that letter. Yet what does he read? Verse 15. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while. That you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother. What? He's not a brother. He's not beloved to me, Paul. He deserves to die for what he did to me. Do you see, folks? Philemon is not only to forgive one Seamus, but now this slave is a Christian. He is to model in his home what the Christian gospel has to say about the whole slavery issue. Go to this fellowship group, verse 2, that meets in Philemon's house. And there is about to be a small revolution, a small cultural revelation take place. Because as the group heads, no longer will this slave be coming in with the pizzas in order to then just depart. No, he is to be at the heart of the group, sharing Paul's prayer requests with them. Sitting down with others, studying with them, praying with them, participating as one of them. The whole dynamic has changed in this test case Of Galatians 3 verse 28, there is neither Jew now, now there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Folks, here is the time bomb ticking away in the New Testament that would explode with that great Christian campaigner, William Wilberforce, and the abolition of slavery in 1833. Here it is, as Philemon is challenged to show what it means for Christians to be all one in Christ Jesus. So here's the application. That's the story, here's the application. Please see here the sacrifice that everyone has to make in order for this relationship to be restored. Paul, he's old, he's in prison. That's what it says, verse 9. And he could do with all the help that he could get And yet, he gives away this useful 
servant. This guy who has become like a son to him. His very heart. He's willing to do that. Then once Seamus is prepared to go back to Philemon, to go back to him in person and see the one who he's offended. Do you know how that feels when you have to do that? (laughs) Not even when the person who you're going back to could have you crucified. You know, when I pick up the phone to apologize to someone or to arrange to have a difficult conversation, I find that it's got teeth on it. (laughs) I find myself just putting it back down and going, you know what? I think I'm just going to go and make myself a cup of tea first. I put it off all day long. But when Seamus won't do that, now he's a Christian, Christ calls him to hold up his hand and say, no, it was totally my fault. I'm sorry I wronged you. Please forgive me. And Philemon? Well, he has got to take very, very seriously some verses we looked at earlier on in the week in our midweek groups from Colossians. Colossians 3 verse 13, bear with one another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Folks, we actually prayed that earlier on in this service, didn't we? Or was that effect in the Lord's prayer? Forgive us our sins, we prayed, as we forgive those who sin against us. And that forgiveness, folks, it mustn't simply be words. It has to be borne out in action. So Philemon has not just got to forgive. He's got to try and forget and to treat this runaway slave as a brother. And Paul's emphatic about this. Can we see verse 17? So, if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. So my question for you this morning, folks, is who are you trying to avoid? Who would you rather not receive with warmth and affection if they were to walk through the doors of this room this morning? Folks, I have to say, as I've examined myself on this issue in terms of some of my trickier relationships, don't worry, it's not with anybody here. But as I've examined myself, I've found that that, that I so easily fall into condemnation and avoidance at one and the same time. (laughs) It's so easy to avoid the issue but find myself condemning people in my heart. And it's so easy also to self-justify and make excuses, like, you know, what good will it do to confront? It'll just lead to an argument. Or, you know, is their problem? I mean, why should I get involved in that? But at the end of the day, I know that my problem is simply that I don't want to have to make the sacrifices that Paul and Onesimus and Philemon are called to make here. Which is why I, and I think you guys too, need to see the motivation Paul gives Philemon to make that sacrifice. Here's the why. I mean, why do this? Why seek reconciliation? Do you see it? Verse 8. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake... I prefer to appeal to you. Just think about that little phrase, for love's sake, for a moment. I think that we 
all of us make our decisions for someone or something's sake, don't we? I wonder how you'd fill the blank for blank's sake. What's your motivation? I think a lot of our decisions are made for convenience sake, aren't they? Anything for an easy life. Or for profit's sake, asking always, what's in it for me? (laughs) I'll do whatever works for me. And then there's guilt's sake, for guilt's sake. I think we do a lot of things because we feel bad about them. Or so that we don't feel bad about them. Because we think we ought to do them. Like, if you're a Christmas card sender, I know not everybody is, but if you send, send out Christmas cards before Christmas and you had it all wrapped up a week, two weeks before Christmas, maybe even earlier, swat. Here's what happens when you then receive a card from someone you have not sent a card to. You open it up and you go, oh no, now I'm going to have to get more cards and more stamps and send them a card. We do so much out of guilt, don't we? But Philemon says here, sorry, Paul says to Philemon here, I could guilt trip you. I could. I could command you. I could, I could try and manipulate you somehow. But I'd much rather you did this for love's sake. But what is that? I mean, we use the word love for, oh, in all kinds of ways, don't we? Like I, like I say that I love my wife and children. I say it and I do love my wife and children. But I also love donuts and football. And I don't think they're the same kinds of love. But there should be no confusion here, no confusion at all about the love that Paul is talking about. Because in the original Greek, the word is agape. It's self-giving love. It's the kind of love that Jesus showed on the cross for you and for me. Uh, Which Paul actually describes in that first Bible reading we had from Colossians 1, verse 21. Paul says there that Jesus died to reconcile us to God Not when we were his friends, but when we were his enemies. Folks, imagine you're going to get a dog for a pet. And so you go down to the Newcastle dog and cat shelter. I've never been, actually, so I don't know how this works. But let's just imagine that it works like this. You walk in and you have a choice, a free choice of any dog there. Um, and so you, you walk along the rows of dogs in the cages, um, giving it their best little cute dog face. <laughs> Just as well, I'm not a lonely dog, eh? Um, but they're going, pick me, pick me. What would you look for? You would look for the one that appealed to you the most. Which one are you going to pick? Which one looks lovable? It'd be quite extraordinary, wouldn't it, if you walked in and you said, listen, I want you to give me the meanest, angriest, ugliest dog that you've got. I want a dog that has absolutely nothing attractive about them. And so they lead you to this mangy, kind of um, snarling dog with a rabid look in its eyes. And they say, this dog has killed its last six owners. And you go, that's the one? I'll have it. I mean, that would be extraordinary, wouldn't it? You would never do that. But folks, the Bible says that God's God's love is not a love that that walks along and says, oh, wow, what an adorable little human being. How can I possibly not love them? No, God chose to love what was not lovely. Colossians 1 verse 21, he chose to love his enemies. You see, folks, 
There was once a time when we were alienated from God. We weren't just neutral, kind of floating around, neither loving God nor hating God. No, we were dead set against God in our thinking, in our behavior, and therefore deserving of punishment, not love. But even then, God said, I will choose to love you. Let that sink in. Put your name in there. God, while you were still his enemy, chose to love you. He decided to love you. He decided to send his precious, darling, one and only son to die for you. That is gospel, good news, love. And that is the kind of love that Paul is calling Philemon to show to one Seamus. I don't want to force you to obey. I don't want to command you. I want you to choose to for love's sake. Loving broken, sinful people, people full of sin, even your enemy, just as I have loved you. Do you see, folks, why do this? Why seek reconciliation when it can be so, so costly? Because of how God in Christ loved you. And folks, here is the big crescendo of this message. Gospel love will take you further and take you deeper than you could ever imagine. It will push us further. It will take us to places that we would not naturally go. It will take us into relationships that we would not naturally choose to pursue or be willing to pursue. Philemon is being asked to do something that is monumentally way too much for him. Everything in Philemon must just be crying out. He has to be punished. He must pay. But only gospel love will overcome. It will push Philemon further and take him deeper than he could ever imagine. And it will ultimately make Philemon more like Jesus. More like the person that God has always wanted him to be, intended him to be. So lastly, as we close, let's look briefly at the how. How does Paul go about healthy confrontation? Well, let's have a quick look at how this letter starts. Verses 4 to 7, Paul says to Philemon, he writes to Philemon, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. Because I hear of your love and of the faith you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Folks, if someone came to me and confronted me like that, I would be delighted to see them. Wouldn't you? I mean, see how Paul delights in this man. I hear about your faith, your love for the saints. I'm praying for you. You've you've refreshed the hearts of so many, including me. Thank you so much. He is so sensitive to what this man does well. And he's specific about it, isn't he? He doesn't just come in and go, look, you're a lovely guy, nice hair, by the way, but I've got something to tell you. Boom, both barrels. 
And please see also, this is really important. Paul doesn't label Philemon. You rich, slave-owning, slave-killing bigot. That's the label, isn't it? And folks, that's what some of us are doing in our relationships. And as we move from discussing the issue to attacking the person's character, we say, oh, well, they were late. They're lazy. They didn't get back to me. They lack integrity. They're dishonest. And so we go, from, we go, go in labeling them with accusations, and we actually automatically put them on the defensive from the start. Well, Paul does the opposite here, doesn't he? He opens Philemon up by firstly expressing appreciation for who he is and the relationship they have. And then secondly, he anticipates all that Philemon can be. All that God is doing in Philemon's life to make him more like Jesus by challenging him. That's how he anticipates, by challenging him gently, caringly, graciously, and pushing him out of, the comf- out of his comfort zone to be more like Jesus. And so the lesson here is, if you have some confronting to do, please first pray, and then actually summon up the courage to do it. But when you do it, please, like Paul, wrap it in the paper of appreciation and anticipation. Let me pray for us. Well, in fact, I'm not going to. I'm going to encourage us to pray Uh, Just in a moment of silence, there's lots to think through, lots to pray through on our own. You will know uh, the situation in your own life. You will know uh, how this message affects your hearts. Let's take a moment to pray. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. Amen. Now, folks, I just cut something out because I was conscious we were slightly overrunning. Uh, apologies for being a bit, bit long this morning. Um, thank you so much for bearing with me. But I'm just going to shove it back in because actually you might want to know how the story finishes. What actually happens? What's the response to this letter? I'm on the edge of, well, the steps, not my seat. And can I just tell you, this doesn't always happen with confrontation, but can I just tell you, that we don't know it from this letter, but from early church history, writings in early church history, we know that one Seamus actually became a church leader. And he became a bishop in the church in this area of Asia Minor. One of the leaders of his generation. Can you imagine that? And all because Philemon took this letter to heart and didn't crucify him. Surely he's sitting there in his old age, seeing one Seamus ministering to people all through the region, just going, oh man. I'm so glad I didn't crucify him. I'm so glad I didn't crucify him. Confrontation, folks, it can be such a good thing. So let's, as we read, uh, read, no, sing our closing hymn. Let's uh, be thinking that through. And in particular, here's a serving suggestion for this hymn, or should I say a singing suggestion for this hymn. Uh, Let's particularly pay attention to verse 2. Let's stand and sing.